Um, let me ask you a question. What is it necessary for, or let me put it this way, what makes you a Christian? Faith in Christ. What happens when you place faith in Christ? You become a child of God. Notice that phrase now, a child of God. And actually become a child of God by being born again. Notice that phrase as well. Born again, child of God. When we are born again and become a child of God, what is God to us? A father. Notice the terminology again. Born again, child of God, father. Now, when we become a child of God and God becomes our father, what is our relationship to other Christians? Brothers and sisters, do you notice any uniting concept or thought? We are family. We are a family. We are the family of God. Now, you know, one of the most prominent metaphors or illustrations or whatever you want to call it of the people of God, the church, is the body. And we emphasize that here. We are members of the incredible body of Christ. But, you know, if you read the scriptures very carefully, you'll find that the body is not the primary metaphor or illustration of the church or the people of God. Do you know what it is? It's the family. Because you'll read about brothers and sisters. You'll read about being born again. You'll read about being adopted into the family of God. You'll be reading about inheritance. You'll be reading about all of these concepts, these terms that have to do with the family. And so the most prominent description of the people of God is not the body of Christ. It's the family of God. And I believe that because we have lost this concept of the family, we're missing out what relationships really mean in the church of Jesus Christ. I believe that if we can see ourselves on an ongoing basis as a family rather than an organization, because that's what we think about when we say, think about the church, we think about an organization. In Timothy, Paul says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to behave where? In the household of God. That's the family of God. The family of God. And so what I want to do is I want to go to the Scripture uh, today and next time, Lord willing, to just go to the Scriptures and see how this concept is brought about with the prayer that it might cause us to change, if we need to, our attitudes towards one another. I want you to take your Bibles and go turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. I had one of the most uh, wonderful compliments given to me the other uh, evening when I spoke at, the, at one of the a conference put on by the brethren. Afterward, one of the leaders came into me and said, Pastor Lee, tonight I cannot say that you told me anything. Now, how would you like to be told that after his preach, after message? I can't, tell, I can't go out here and say you told me anything. I stood there waiting for the next thing. 
He says, but I couldn't go out and say that God spoke to me through his word because all you focused on was the word of God. And beloved, I could not get a higher compliment from the ministry because that's all I want is the word of God. So that's what we can do tonight. We're going to the scriptures, word of God, and just see what he has. I could go in here and bring up a topical message and say, see what it says about the family, see what it says about the family, but it, sometimes it takes it out of the context, and we do not get the intention of the author for that passage. And so we're simply going into the text and see what it says to us. Now, when we come to the epistle of John, the first epistle of John, we know that one of his primary concerns was false teachers. He was concerned about false teachers coming into the people of God, especially those who were teaching that Jesus was not God. And he was trying to show them how they could detect false teachers. And he, what I call, he laid down what I call doctrinal tests. If a person doesn't say this, he's not teaching the truth. That's what he deals with. But we won't look at that aspect in chapter 3 because when we come to chapter 3, he goes now, well, he has another concern. He says, unfortunately, not only are there false teachers coming in who are not saved teaching false doctrine, but there are also people who are Christians or profess to be Christians who are also teaching false doctrine. Now, I want you, he says, in effect, to be able to detect who these people are. And so he's going to give us some moral tests now as to, de to determine who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Keep that in mind as we begin looking at this passage. Something is rubbing here. I'm not sure what it is. First John chapter 3. Notice how he begins. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. He's going to describe for us now the, incom the incomprehensibility of God's love. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. I want you to understand. I want you to get a vision of this. How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. How? That we should be called what? The children of God. I think the King James says the sons of God. In other words, he's saying, here is a way that God manifested his incomprehensible love towards us. He made us his children. And such we are. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That's the King James Version. I like that. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we should be called the sons of God. Now the word manner there. Means foreign. Or alien. And so what John is saying here. How alien and foreign to us, it's God's love that enabled us to become the children of God. In other words, God's love that made us his children is from another dimension. It's not from this dimension in the world in which we live. 
It's alien to this. We've never experienced this kind of love. This love really cannot be or originate within this dimension in which we live. This kind of love originates in another dimension. You talk about encounter of the, the third, how does it go? Encounter of the third kind. This is the encounter of the first kind. How foreign to us is God's love that enabled us to become the children of God. His love is of another world entirely. Can you get a hold of that? The reason why we have the privilege of being called the children of God is because of this incomprehensible love that reaches from another dimension and takes a hold of us. It's not because of what you did. Not because how smart you are, how beautiful or handsome you are, or how ugly you are, or how poor you are. It's all because of God's incomprehensible love. Human love could never do what God did for us. You see, this is a family love. This is what I'm getting at. This is a family love. This is a divine love for the family. No one else could do this. Only a father could do this. We who are sinners were made saints because of God's love, through our faith in Christ, of course. We who were his enemies, by choice, he made us his friends. How? By his choice. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive in the spirit. We who were lost, he found us. We didn't find him. He found us. We who were the children of the devil. He has made us the children of God. That's God's incomprehensible love from another dimension. Only divine love could affect such wonderful changes in our lives. And it was all done through his son, Jesus Christ, and our faith, our trust in him. Jesus, by the, day, by the way, was also out of this world from another dimension. You remember when he was on that tossing ship after uh, they were set out to go to the other side of the lake? And they saw Jesus, the disciples saw Jesus calmly sleeping untroubled on the deck of the ship. You remember that? The waves tossing and turning and the frail vessel tossed all about on the raging lake. And they woke him. What did they say? Master, carest not that we perish? Then he got up and he said, What? Peace, be still. Remember that? Peace, be still. And what happened? There was peace. The water was stilled. And then remember the remarkable words of disciples. What manner? of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him. What were they saying? They were saying, what kind of a man is he? This man is foreign to this world. He is an alien here. He is out of this world. That's what they were saying. Jesus, who's out of this world, sent his son from out of this world to make us a part of his out-of-the-world family. 
Isn't that out of the world? How great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. That's the kind of love that God loves us with. It's another kind of love. And that's the kind of love that John is going to say, we need to have for one another. An out-of-the-world kind of love. That's the kind of love the family of God is to show to what Not the kind of love the human family shows, but the kind of love that only God can show. Man, that's something else, isn't it? Now, what is the logical consequence of this? Look at your scriptures. He says later on, For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Now, he's talking about our intimate, close knowledge. This knowledge of an out-of-the-world person can only be had by the out-of-the-world God giving us an out-of-the-world illumination of himself. You remember when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? You Elias, you John the Baptist, you all of these. Who do you say that I am? Peter got up and what did he say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What did Jesus, the out of the world man, said? Flesh and blood, people in this world, didn't reveal it to you. But my Father, who is in another world, has revealed it to you. See, that's how we enter into the family of God. When this out-of-the-world God gives this out-of-the-world revelation concerning His Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that out-of-the-world? That's amazing. That's how we become an out-of-the-world family of God. Are you glad you're part of the family? This sends goosebumps down my back. The Scripture says, Jesus came to His own, and His own knew Him not, His own people. They did not recognize him for who he was. Neither, my friends, will the unbeliever recognize the children of God for who we are. That's what he's saying here in this verse. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. You see, Jesus is not only our Savior, he's our elder brother. Isn't that right? He's our elder brother. Family relation. Now, they didn't recognize our elder brother. You think they're going to recognize us as being out of this world? No, they won't. Why? They don't belong to the family. They don't belong to the family. They can only see in their own spectacles, as it were. They can't see us for who we really are, even the way they couldn't see him for who he really was. Now look at verse 2. And this verse now, this really knocks us off. It tells, it tells us about something that is even greater than knowing that we are now the children of God. Now really, if you really get a hold of what it means to be the children of God, I'm telling you, you'd get an out-of-the-world feeling. You really would. Now if you think that's something, listen what he says beloved now are we the children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be isn't that amazing now are we the children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be in other words what are the results of this being child of God belonging to out-of-the-world family. Notice what he says. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. 
See? That's, notice what he says now. It has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. What shall we be? We shall be like him. We shall be like him. Now, if we think it's something to be called the children of God, what do you think it's going to be when we are like him? Now, you see, unless you really appreciate what it means to be a child of God now, you really cannot appreciate what it means, what it's going to mean to be like him. You can't do it. All, you, all this is words to you. But to be a part of this family where the Father who originated us reached out from another dimension and he caused us to become a part of his family. We are living in two dimensions now. This world is not our home. See? But something greater is coming about, he says, that will cause us to realize what it means to really be the children of God. Why shall we be like him? Because we shall see him as he is. Now notice what he's saying. We shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Now that means, unless we are like him, we can't see him as he is. In other words, we have got to be transformed in order to truly look upon Jesus Christ for who he really is. We have got to have an out-of-the-world body, as it were, in order to truly appreciate who Jesus Christ is. Otherwise, if we were to be exposed to the glory of Jesus, much less the glory of the Father, we'll explode. Can't take it. And so he says, hey, that's what's going to happen. You call the children of God now, but then you're going to be actually transformed to be just like your elder brother, and you're going to see him just as he is. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? Man alive. So what is John saying? John is saying, if you think knowing that you are a child of God now on this earth is something, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is just the beginning for us. One day when Jesus Christ comes back for us, we will be transformed to be just like him. How do I know this? Because we shall see him just as he is. The scripture tells us he's coming back in all of his glory. And we are going to be transformed into his very presence. To see him as he is. And my friends, we can only do this, see him as he is, if we are transformed into his image. Just think about it. Just think about it for a moment. No longer hidden behind his veil of humanity. We will see Jesus in all his glory. Remember in Acts in John 17, Father, give me back my glory I had before I came down. That's what he said. Glorify me with the glory I had before I came. God said, you got it. And he is manifesting that glory now. And when he comes back for us, in all of his majesty, in all of his glory, in all of his holiness, we shall see him 
as he is. We have to be changed. And we will be. Paul reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Why? For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's our blessed hope, my friends. We will have bodies just like our glorious Lord. And this will enable us to see him as he is and not be destroyed by the brightness of his glory or the pureness of his holiness. What a blessed, wonderful hope this is. Amen? Are you asleep? This is wonderful stuff, man. Look at verse 3. John goes now to show that every believer should have this hope. Every child of God should have this hope. And if he has, John, is, this is the point he's making now. If you have this hope, it is a mark to distinguish you from the children of the devil. If you have this hope, it will distinguish you from the children of the devil. In other words, a mark of a child of God is to have this blessed hope in a practical way. He says that marks you as being different from the children of the devil. Listen to what he says. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. Isn't that amazing? If we have this hope, what hope? Of seeing Jesus as he is, being transformed. And if we have this hope, then we will be transformed morally, just as he is. This holiness he's talking about here. One of the marks that distinguishes the child of God from the child of the devil is holiness of life. And that's one of the problems we have today. You have Christians and non-Christians and they're living together and they have fun together and you can't tell the difference. You can't tell, you can't tell the difference today in many cases between a child of the devil and the child of God. That's a shame. That's why, Paul, that's why John is writing this. Because he wants us to be sure who the children of God are. And he says, here's the mark, mark that distinguishes us as children of God. This first one here is the mark of holiness, the purity of being like Jesus. Jesus is saying that the believer's anticipation of future transformation into the physical likeness of Christ should be a present motivation that makes us to be morally just like him right now. You see, this body of ours cannot be gradually changed. When this is changed, it's going to be done instantaneously. But our character, our walk towards holiness of life is a gradual thing. And every day we are to be changed. And you see, that's the whole purpose, the whole direction of my ministry, to lead people to Christian maturity, to holiness of life. Not to be involved in all kinds of things necessarily, but to have your life transformed. To every day to become more like Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what John is saying here now. We should be Christ-like in character in this world because we have the blessed hope of being Christ-like in the form, in our bodily form in the world to come. 
And beloved, it is, it is this Christ-likeness and holiness of life that distinguishes a true child of God from a mere professor who is in reality a child of the devil. That is, Paul, that is the, uh, John's point here. Now look at verse 4. He states the principle. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. This is the principle now. Remember, he's trying to give a mark. How do you distinguish the children of God from the children of the devil? Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. Two things need to be pointed out here. First, John is emphasizing the practice of sin. In other words, that which constantly characterizes a person's lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. It's a habitual behavior, not an occasional incident. Because John has already said in the first chapter that he knows believers are going to sin. He said he don't want you to sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. Remember? And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from. So he knows we're going to fall periodically. But he's talking about a way of life, something that is done all the time. He's going to teach us here that no one who is a genuine Christian can go on sinning habitually. That's contrary to the nature of God. That's what he's saying. It's important for us to see here now. And secondly, he says, sin is a deliberate rejection of God's law. It's a willful decision to live apart contrary to the word of God. That's sin. It's a transgression of the law of God. Now notice what John is saying. Look at the text. John says, one person who has a conscious, objective knowledge of the blessed hope in him cannot live a life of practicing sin every day. No one who says he has the blessed hope and goes on sinning is telling the truth. He is lying. That's what he's saying. It's, these two things are incompatible. What? Having a real, true, genuine, authentic belief Jesus Christ is coming soon and we're going to be transformed into his very image and he could come right now. And then every day you are sinning. It's impossible. I don't care what you or anyone says. John said, it's impossible. You could say you have the belief, but if you're practicing sin, you're lying. You're only mouthing the words. That's what he's saying. See, what I like about John, he's a black and white fellow. You know, gray areas here with John. This is it. Either you is or you ain't. That's what he's telling you. And if you do this, then you are or you ain't, depending on what it is. That's what he's saying. Let's take a look now. Notice. In verse 5 now he says, You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Jesus came, he appeared the first time to take away sins. Notice, he didn't come to take away sin in this passage. He came to take away sins. When it says to take away, the take away means to lift off our sins, to lift our sins off us. That's the meaning of to take away, to lift off, or another version says to roll off. This is the same word that is used in John 1.29 when John saw Jesus coming down by the riverside. And he says what? Behold, 
the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Who rolls away the sins of the world. Who lifts them off you. That's what he said. Notice the word is also sins there. Not sin. He's not talking about the principle. He's talking about the acts of sin. In other words, what he's talking about here is sin as deeds, not as sin as nature. Not as sin as an essence or a principle, but what we do every day. The same idea is in Matthew 121, when the announcement came about Jesus' birth. He says, Mary will have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for what? He will save his people, what? From their sins. That's practicing sin every day. It doesn't mean from the judgment of sin. It means from doing sins on a daily basis. You Sometimes we mix those things up. Jesus came to save us from practicing sin on a daily basis. That's what it means. And if you have a person saying, I am a Christian, and they are deliberately practicing sin, deliberately rejecting the word of God, deliberately being lawless, knowing the law of God and not obeying it, John says that person is not a believer. Sorry about it. That's what he says. Remember what Peter says? About Jesus Christ, he did no sin. That's Jesus. And he wants us to be like him now, the elder brother. And Jesus has given us the power through the Holy Spirit to be like him. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection because we we already realize that we will sin periodically. He's talking about sin as a way of life. You're going on it, you're enjoying it, and you know Scripture and you quote Scripture, but you don't live Scripture. Christ came to make us to be like him. Didn't come to make us to be little gods, mind you. People preaching that today. But to make us God-like in our character. And so both the work of Christ on the cross and his sinless character, therefore, are incompatible with a habitual lifestyle. Listen to what verse 6 says. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, that's some strong words, eh? Christians are like, look at that. Some people say it means if I make one mistake, then I ain't no Christian. No, no, no. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. These words are what they call in the present continuing sense. It's something that you go on doing all the time. That's the emphasis here. John says the same thing in two different ways in this text. First, he says, it is impossible for anyone who derives his source of life from Jesus to sin habitually. That's what it means to abide in him. It means that we are drawing the the source of our life from Jesus Christ. It means that we are drawing upon him for how we live our life. And we cannot be constantly drawing our life from Jesus Christ and to live like the devil. We cannot say we are abiding in Christ and we're living like the devil. You can't say that I belong to this family, but you're living like this one here. That's John's point. Put it another way. It is impossible for anyone to be obedient to the words of Christ and sin at the same time. 
You hear what I'm saying? You cannot be obedient to the words of Christ and sinning at the same time. They're incompatible. How can you be drawing your life from Christ and sinning? That's what he's saying. As an obituary. You can't because that source of life has been given to you so that you can overcome sin. Not to empower you to sin. It's incompatible. That's what John is saying here. But second, John says that anyone who practices sin on an ongoing basis has not had any kind of personal experience with Jesus Christ. Such a person does not know Christ personally, no matter what he or she says. I'm sorry, folks, but that's Scripture. You could say what you want. You could be as sincere as you like. But if you practice sin continually and don't confess it and you keep on doing that, you could say you're a Christian all you like. John says, you're lying. You're deceiving yourself. But now look at verse 7. This is the application now. Listen to the family terminology. And I want you to see how this comes through because we could bring this together next time. Lord, Little children. I love that. Little children. Little out-of-the-world children. Little alien children. Little foreign children. That's what he's saying. Let no one deceive you. Wait, John, you should have come here a little while ago to these people here. Because they deceived me. Anyway, that's another thing. This is his warning. Let no one deceive you. You see, he's saying there are deceivers within the church. They are. You don't have to guess that. They are. They've been there from the beginning and they're still here. You see. People lie about their faith. See, my heart is broken every time I think of Ted Haggard. I, I, even, I even know how to talk about that. And I just, I, oh, pray for me, please, on all of us as, as leaders. Please, I, I'm, I'm, I'm serious about this. Here's this man, leader of millions of evangelical Christians. And he was living a lie. That's difficult to understand. That's difficult to understand. Pray for him. Pray for the man who accused him. That he might come to place faith in Christ as well. But they are deceivers. People who lie about their faith. People who profess to be saved but who are not. Don't be deceived by words, John says. I see this. Don't be deceived by what they say. Look at their life. That's what John is saying. Notice one. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as Christ is righteous. The one who is practicing righteousness all the time. Don't just listen to the preacher. Look at what he's doing. You see, that's why I say to you, as a shepherd of God's people, my life is open to you. 
It has to be. Otherwise, I could end up like Ted Haggard. You have the right to ask me any question you want about my life. Now, I could lie to you, but you have the right. I'm serious about that. You see? The one who practices righteousness is righteous. What is righteousness? Righteousness is doing what is right before God. Unmanned. Without selfish motivation, we're doing it for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. That's Christ's likeness. John is saying then, if you belong to Christ, and he is your elder brother, and God is your father, then be like Christ. Be like your elder brother. Be like your father. The emphasis is on habitual practice, an ongoing lifestyle, not individual isolated acts, because God is so gracious if we sin. You see, that's why I'm saying, if Ted really goes before God and he confesses, God will forgive him. Isn't that wonderful? God will forgive him, no matter what. That's the grace of God. We abuse the grace of God so much. Oh, I know this wrong, but God can forgive me. You know something? That sounds so horrible. But you know something? If somebody sins like that and they go with sincerity of heart, God will forgive them. Now, if I was God, I won't do that. But I'm glad I am God. Because you see, sometimes I do that. The grace of God. You see. But now look at verse 8. He gives the contrast to Christ's likeness. He says, the one who practices sin is of the devil. See how he's contrasting? The one who practices righteousness belongs to the family of God. The one who practices unrighteousness, which is sin, belong to the family of the devil. He's trying to contrast him. He's trying to show you that you cannot go on practicing sin and say that you and really be a part of the family of God. Impossible. Can't do it. That's what he's saying. Because really, that's unrighteousness. Because you're lying. It's a hypocritical thing to do. And that's sin. And you cannot go on habitually doing that and be an authentic part of the family of God. Notice verse 8. The one who practices sin of the devil. Now you can tell who the fathers are. God is our father. When we live a life of righteousness. Manifested in the living of righteousness. The one who manifests a life of sin, unrighteousness. The devil is his father. He, the unbeliever, is the devil's offspring. Now that's hard to say, isn't it? But I'm sorry, that's what John is saying. Notice why? Because the devil has sinned from the beginning. He is the author and originator of sin. He has been habitually and constantly, consistently sinning since the creation of the human race and even before. John is emphasizing that the devil is the father of all those who sin habitually. There is a family connection. You, Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, are of your father, the devil. Notice verse 5. Going back here. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Our elder brother came. To destroy the works of the devil, the father 
of the unrighteous. Christ came to undo the works of the devil, and this involves not only the removal of the penalty for sin upon believers, but also the removal of the power of sin from believers. In other words, he's come to set us free from the power and control of sin so that we could practice righteousness. His death secured uh, freedom from the judgment of sin. His resurrection and high priestly ministry provides what we need to live in the, in the power over sin today. Now, here's the outcome, verse 9, and we'll stop here. I wish you could go on and on with this. This is wonderful stuff, isn't it? Is this wonderful stuff? And it is. No one... Now, some people really get this one, boy. No one who is born of God practices sin. Isn't that something? Now, you see why I say John is a black and white fellow? By the way, did you hear about the baby who had twins the other day? One black and one white? I love that. One black and one white. See John like that. You could tell the difference. Right here. You, right, you know. Right down the line. No, no middle ground here. No middle ground at all. No one who is born of God habitually practices sin. Impossible. I don't care how much you say you're a believer, but if you are practicing sin every day, going on, going on, John says, your father is not God. At least not a God from the other world. Your father is the God of this world. Different world altogether. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. In other words, the genuine believer, the genuine family of God, a member of the incredible family of God has the nature of God within us. Therefore, John says, we cannot go on practicing sin. That's just impossible. Impossible. Now, I want to make it clear. He's not talking about periodical sinning. He took care of that. He's dealing about a habitual lifestyle of sin. It's impossible for you to live like the devil and be a child of God. That's what he's saying. John is not saying that a Christian cannot fall into sin on occasion. He's dealt with that in chapter 1. He's saying this is a habitual lifestyle. We cannot at any time, he says, we cannot at any time claim to be a child of God if we are habitually practicing sin in our lives. Now, notice verse 10. I'll really stop this time. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made obvious. Now, how many of you all believe in eternal security? All right. What do you base that on? The Bible. That's a good thing to base it on, isn't it? And we all like to go 1 John 5, 11, 12, 13. This is a record that, I've let, that I leave unto you that, that uh, how's it go? In the name of the Son of God. That he, uh, boy, let me, let, me, let me settle down. I am too excited now. This is a record that is given unto us. That he has, this is a record that is given up. Boy, how in the world have we been? He has given us eternal life and this life in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things that are written unto you that believe on the Son of God that you may what? No. And so we go to the Word of God, right? 
Well, let me give you another one. Let me give you another one. This is why it's important, because sometimes that's very theological. Go to the Word. Now, listen to what he says here. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested, made obvious, distinguished. What is it? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, you like that one, eh? I know that. Carrying on sin. I know that. I, I know that's marks such as a child of God. Now, notice what he says now. Nor the one who does not love his brother. Do you want to know if you're really saved? If you're really a child of God? I'm going to ask you if you believe 1 John 5, 11, 12, 13, 14. Or 13. I'm going to ask you this. The same thing John asked you. Do you love your brother? Do you love your sister? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of love. I'm talking about the out-of-the-world kind of love. The kind of love that only the people of God can give towards one another. John is going on to it in, in verses 11 through 24. And we're going to see that next week. But... This is what he's saying here. One genuine, authentic proof that we are children of God is our love, our out-of-the-world love for our brothers and sisters. He goes on later, he says, if our heart doesn't condemn us, then we have assurance from God. How's your heart right now? When it comes to your relationship, your brother and sister do you have this out of the love out of the world love for one now he's going about sometimes that sound a little way up there in the air you know but later on he's going to say here's how you demonstrate that out of the kind of love you look at this next week lord willing he says if you see your brother or sister have a need and you shut up your bowels of compassion Against him, how can you say you love your brother and sister? You lie. That's John now. That's not Alan Lee. That's John. If you are truly a member of this out-of-the-world family, and you see another member of this out-of-the-world family having a need, and you become spiritually constipated, that's what it means to shut up your bowels of mercy. You don't give. You're not showing your love. You know what John says? You better go home and check, see if you're in the faith. I'm sorry. You say, boy, you don't know what that fella did to me. You know what that woman did to me. I, I can't forgive him. No way. I can't love him. You better go check, see if you're a family of God. You might still be in the family of the devil. I'm sorry. That's what John is saying. That's why I like John. He's a black and white fella. He says, if you want to know your child of God, check your heart. Are you loving in a practical way, the out-of-the-world kind of love, your brother and sister? How can you say you have this kind of a love if you shut off your bowels of mercy to a need? That's why I say to you again, beloved, if there's a need that we are aware of in the, mem- in, in the, in the member of God's family, and we don't meet that need, that's sin. And the world will look at us and say, hey, I wonder, are you a child of God or the child of the devil? 
Tough words, eh? But you know something? They're true. I didn't write these last night. God, through the Holy Spirit, motivated John to write these words. By this we know. You can say it next week. By this we know what? We are the children of God. How? If we have love one for another. And this is the kind of love that can only be experienced within a family. Not an organization, but a family. That's why we need to get a hold of this concept. That the church is not only the body of Christ. It is the family of God. I'm so glad. I'm a member of the family of God. Are you? Father, thank you for your word. Bless it to our body's use. May we manifest this love towards one another so that we can manifest to the world that we are children of God. And all of God's people said, Amen.